Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast. We have a, uh, another special set of classes, actually, that you get to listen to. So it deviates a little bit from our normal podcast uh, format. But Rob, explain what we have uh, going on for the next few weeks. We're talking about what is the kingdom of God? Perhaps no more significant question than maybe secondary to what is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. But if he's Lord, it means he's the king. And what's he the king of? And I think if we understand what the kingdom of God is, it'll really help us in so many different aspects of the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, as well as answering all kinds of different issues. And so we're really going to begin to explore those questions. Cool. Well, hey, I hope everyone enjoys this. We'll, you'll be getting these uh, shows along with our regular podcasts uh, for the next few weeks. So I hope you can glean from this and uh, continue to like and subscribe so you could always be updated on uh, what we're releasing. So enjoy this class on the kingdom of God. All right. I want to welcome everyone back as we look at our second week on the question of what is the kingdom of God? And what I thought I would do tonight would be that we're going to look at a couple different questions about understanding the kingdom of God, especially understanding the kingdom of God in distinction from the kingdoms of the world. What, what's the difference and how do we uh, navigate between them? I, again, I can't emphasize how significant a study like this is as we begin to investigate social questions and political questions and ethic questions. My strong conviction is we can't answer those questions. We can't talk about a political issue or a social issue or an ethical issue as Christians without having a proper framework of going, as members of the kingdom of God, how do I approach this? And I think, as we mentioned a couple of weeks back, I think the church has gone radically astray here in the West, and we'll kind of get back to that in a number of weeks. So let me begin, however, tonight by, by kind of I thought, well, if we go systematically, like 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4, 0.5, that'd be really cool. But then the problem with that is like the major point wouldn't come up until like week six. And I don't want to do that. So let me throw out several things at the beginning tonight that we're going to continue to build upon. So we've already discussed that last week that the kingdom of God basically represents the reign of God. That's the idea of what the kingdom of God is. What is the kingdom of God? It represents the reign of God. It's where God is the king. Now, you might stop and go, well, Rob, God, of course, he's obviously he's the king. Therefore, the kingdom of God is meaningless because it's like that's every, what we're going to discuss is the fact that actually God's kingship was to be mediated through Adam and Eve. And when they disobeyed, God's, God's reign is, we might say in heaven, I'm going to clarify that in a minute, his kingdom, and it hasn't come to the earth, to the kingdoms of this world. Uh, the second thing that we want to mention, the, the coming of Christ was the announcement that the kingdom of God has come. And we discussed that when we did our study on what is the gospel in the very first week, Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, pronouncing that the kingdom of God, uh, preaching the gospel of God, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what Jesus was saying was, and I'm the king. Uh, he wasn't simply coming as so often becomes simplified in Christian theology, that evangelical theology or modern Western theology that Jesus came to be the savior and he came to save us from our sins and die on the cross, all of which is true, but we leave out the kingdom part and far greater significance actually is that he's coming to be the king. So he's proclaiming the kingdom of God's coming in his presence and that he's its king. So that means the kingdom of God started and we'll, we're going to have to discuss and unpack that a little bit more uh, as we proceed. Next thing, and that is this. I love the Bible Project, and I think some of you guys know about them. If, obviously, if you were at our church in Bakersfield, we showed the videos from the Bible Project. Uh, the Bible Project videos are fantastic. You can go on YouTube and just type in the Bible Project. If you want to get a five-minute, eight-minute video on the Gospel of Matthew, on the book of Nehemiah, on any book of the Bible, they've done a video on it, and the videos are cartoonish. They're, they're drawn, I don't know what you call, animated. And they're excellent. They are really, really, really good. They also have all kinds of other videos. Now they finished all the books of the Bible. So they started doing other videos on like the kingdom of God and on the gospel. And they just keep expanding. And now they're becoming worldwide. So people are translating the videos into other languages. It's, it's fantastic what they're doing. They also have a podcast that Tim Mackey, the guy that kind of is the head behind the, the Bible project, and he has a PhD from the University of Wisconsin in Old Testament study. And Tim kind of leads this podcast. 
and it's more, shall we say, Bible nerdy. It, it's, it gets really deep and detailed. It, it's, it's, it's a good, good in-depth study. And again, if you listen to it, you can track him. If you go back to the very, very beginning of the podcast, like when it first started, what's really neat about it is that the co-host is a guy named John. I don't remember John's last name, but John was kind of like a lot of us grown up in an evangelical church, maybe even Baptist church, thought about the end of the world, the Bible's literal, all that stuff. And so here comes Tim kind of crashing John's world. And John is being very honest and going, okay, but what about this? And Tim's being very patient with him and kind of guiding him along. It's, it's actually really well done. And, and now you're listening like four or five years in and you're thinking, John's got like a master's degree in Bible and theology from, because he's been on the show every week with Tim. It's, mm -hmm. it's fantastic. But the reason why I brought that up is because they have this catchphrase that basically says that the Bible, it's something along the lines that the Bible is a unified work uh, that leads to Jesus. Something along the lines that the Bible is a unified work that leads to Jesus. And I've been meaning to write them. I just haven't done it. I'm not sure why. And say, that's really good. You know, what's the Bible about? It's about Jesus. Really good. But it's actually an incomplete statement. In other words, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. If we stopped in John 12, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John up to verse 12, we're good. But the Bible's unified book that leads to Jesus after John 12, actually, that's not completely correct. Because what the Bible does from John 13 on is it then focuses upon the spirit. So Jesus says, I'm leaving in John, John, John 14, right? I'm leaving because if I go, I'll send you the spirit. So all of a sudden, there's a focus on the spirit and it's actually a focus on the church because the spirit's going to come and do what in John 16, he'll, he'll remind you of everything I didn't said. The spirit's going to empower the church to do what, to do what Jesus didn't finish, which is the mission of Israel. So now what's interesting about that is, is some of, you know, I was writing a manuscript over the last four or five years. And I thought, all right, I want to deal with race. I want to deal with gender issues. I want to deal with injustices and the issue of justice. And I just don't think that the Christian churches or the evangelical church is approaching these issues the right way because they're not approaching these issues from a kingdom perspective, from a gospel kingdom oriented perspective. They're talking about this issue and this issue. And, and sometimes they might be even talking about the issue correctly in terms of what they're saying is true, but they're not saying it in the Christian way. They're just not re representing the gospel of love and compassion and submission. And, and so how do I do this? So I began writing this manuscript saying, okay, what is the gospel? What is the kingdom of God? Some of which is kind of flowing into, the, into this particular study. And in the meantime, I was pastoring a church, as some of you guys know, in Bakersfield and, and running up, up against obstacles sometimes. I'm not, and, and I understand, but the obstacles of, hey, we need to bring change for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the, the, the next person because they come in and, and they don't like this or this or this. And so in order to reach them, we need to do these things, finding obstacles. And so I'm in the middle of both of these things. I'm in the middle of this world of, of helping get a church to understand the gospel and the mission, the kingdom of God, and what that means for us, as well as writing this manuscript of on the kingdom of God, the gospel and justice, et cetera. So I, at the time I thought, I'm going to title this book, It Ain't About Me, because it kind of fit in both worlds. It, if I could say anything to the church, it would be, look, it ain't about me. It's about the, it's about the witness. It's about the, it's about the kingdom, as well as the fact of that summarizes what the gospel is. But then I began thinking, especially recently, as I was putting together this particular study, sorry for this long monologue here at the beginning, but I began thinking about, you know, actually, it is about me. I mean, my whole point to the Bible project is, the Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus is actually an incomplete statement because it appoints to Jesus, then the spirit, and then the spirit appointing the church. So it is about us in the sense that we are to be the means to which God does the work of building his kingdom. So that's kind of where we're going to go in the next five to 10 weeks of the study. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus. It means where God reigns. Jesus is that king, and therefore the kingdom is present, and that God actually wants to do the work of building his kingdom through us. And so when we sit back passively or idly thinking, oh, you know, God, do your work of your kingdom and God, you know, we pray, God, do your work. You know, God, thy will be done. You, you can do it now, God, because I just asked, prayed, said, thy will be done. I, I've given you my permission for you to do the work of your kingdom. We're actually missing on the fact that actually God's saying, no, I want to empower you to do it through the spirit.
I'm going to hesitate though, because I don't want us walking away going, oh, it's about me because it's about me as I deny myself. It's about us as we take up our crosses and follow Jesus. It isn't about me, but it is about me. Last week, we began, if you're with us, if, go ahead, Derry. Yeah. A long time ago, you, you introduced the, the tension between the already, not yet. Yes. And for me, that was so important to understand that in everything you say, there's an already not yet and how we live Excellent. and how we make decisions. So I don't know. I was yep. just kind of really feeling that as you were talking is yep. that, okay, a lot of this is really amazing information for us to have, yep. but, and how do we live it out? And exactly. that's what came into my brain is that, or whatever you want to say, if I have one, you know, if I only had a brain, if I only had a brain. Yeah. yeah. No, that, yeah. And no. Yeah, exactly. And so we're going to flush that out tonight. To be honest with you, Derry, it was actually the next thing in my notes that I was going to say by way of introduction, and I skipped it. So as soon as you said, I'm like, oh, it's right there in my notes. I should have brought that up already, but I'll bring it up in, in a little bit. Yeah, the, this tension between living in the kingdom now and the, the kingdom being now and not yet. Uh, all right, anybody else? Yeah, uh, Scott. Thanks. You're welcome. I'm kind of balking at the thought that uh, you're, it said Bible is unified work that leads to Jesus, What? and then, you know, then we're supposed to to build God's kingdom. But then I, I, um, the problem I'm having is I, I always thought the Bible was really about glorifying God as the primary um, focus that I should be having. And Jesus is a way to get closer to God. And this is the way I'm thinking. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong or whatever, mm -hmm. but so for me to you know to think about well the, the primary uh, focus is jesus and then doesn't quite seem to flow in my mind uh, so I, I i don't know so i'm sure there's a i have a disconnect <laughs> no i would um i would agree with you but i think it's incomplete and i think it's correct but it can also be misfocused depending on which way we take it Okay. So we, we have had over the last, especially 100 years, but it goes back to the circuit writers and the gospel, you know, the, the whole idea of that the gospel is really about getting saved, right? That just goes back to the first and second great awakenings and which is a result of postmodernism. I'm sorry, it's a result of modernism going back even to the Reformation. And what that's done for us is it's, it's, it's given us this conception that it's about me being saved and going to heaven someday when I die. And I, and if you read the script that I gave last week, and it's still on the, on the thing, I talked about one of the major problems that we have in understanding the kingdom of God is this idea that God's kingdom is up in heaven and we're down here on earth. And these two have never, never the twain shall meet type of thing. Hmm. So there's a little bit of this, this notion there that says it's about glorifying Jesus and me being the spiritual person and, and focusing upon him. And this is what, yeah, it is about glorifying Jesus, right? We beheld his glory, John chapter one. That's, that's the whole point. But the point actually is, is that Adam and Eve were supposed to image that glory. They were supposed to be his okay. image bearers. And then Christ came, who is the image of the invisible God, right? As Paul says in Philippians 2, he is the image of the invisible God. He is that image. He, in other words, he is the true human. He's the true Adam and Eve who is imaging God's nature. And the purpose of imaging God's nature thus reflecting his glory, is to make his glory known throughout the rest of creation. In other words, it's missional also. Okay. And so if we just focus on it as a spiritual act, we miss the mission of it. Uh, and there's a wonderful book out there. There's a large version of it by Christopher Wright called The Mission of God. It's a large tome. It just is. Mm. And if you know who John Stott is in England, Christopher Wright took over John Stott's ministry in England. That tells you who Christopher Wright is. He has a smaller version of it, I think, called The Mission of God's People. It's more readable. And that was one of those things that was like, hey, oh, yeah, now it makes sense here that actually, and First Peter 2 says that he called us so that we may make him known. That's First Peter 2.9. 
So there's this mission. It's not this, oh, thank you, God, for saving me so I can go to heaven now when I die. It's like, no, now get up, please, and go make me known of the rest of the creation. And we make okay. him known by reflecting that glory. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, and uh, also, ahead, like, in real terms, it's like, how do I live? Yeah, Because, exactly. like, a long time ago, it was probably the last class that you did at Cornerstone, was you said there's five Gospels. Yeah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and me. And the last one is hmm. the one that most people remember. That, I mean, to me, it's like, yeah, it's great that we make them known, but I more make them known if uh, I don't interrupt people, if I'm kind, if I think of them more than me, if I hmm. am gracious, which I'm not, you know, so. Sure you are. <laughs> sure you are. Ah. Yes. And that's the key that we have to get to. And that is, you know, I'm writing a commentary on the book of Revelation. And obviously the key, in, in my opinion, in the book of Revelation is the two witnesses and the churches are lampstands, which means that they're witnesses. Well, that's all great. The problem with that is if we leave the word witness out there, our job is to be God's witnesses. We are the two witnesses. We leave the word witness undefined or un, like, what does that mean? And, and then we fill it in well, with what we commonly conceived. Oh, okay. That means I have to go out in street corners and, and have a, a horn and say, Jesus is Lord. And you're going to die in your sins. If you don't repent, we fill in the content of what does it mean to be his witnesses? And the answer is we, re we reflect him. We live like he did, right? We, we take up our crosses and bear and deny ourselves and follow him. Meaning we love, as we discussed in the last uh, study, we love the other more than ourselves. When we reflect love as when we're, when we're known for being loving, then we're actually being the church. I've said in, the, in our last study a couple of weeks back, I think the Western church is dead. I don't think it can be revived. I think it needs a resurrection and not a revival. And I think one of the reasons why I'd say that is because it's not by no means. If you were to ask people in the culture and surveys are out there, what do you think of when you think of Christians? love would not be on the list. It wouldn't not only be last on the list, it just wouldn't even be on the list. Kind probably would not be on the list. Now, don't misunderstand. Some of you guys in this room and the Zoom call, you're kind and people will go, oh, I think of so-and-so and I think of someone who's kind. That's true. But when, I, when we ask people, what do you think of the church as this large umbrella category, right? Of all people who quote unquote, love, kind, forgiving, uh, understanding, compassion, those are not on the list. Judgmental, arrogant, Hypocrit hateful, hypocritical, hypocritical yeah. co condemnatory. Those are all words, right? Anti-gay, uh, whatever it might be. Th those are what people think of. That tells you that the church is lost. And I think it's so far lost that if we go back to those that, that were with us in our Isaiah study, I think it's so far lost that Isaiah's job now is to do what? To render their eyes dull and their, ear, their ears dull and their eyes dim so that they cannot see lest they repent and be saved. And God's answer is, I'm not going to say, I can't use this group. I can use the remnant that comes from them, but this group needs to die. Mm. And then there's a remnant, and there's always a righteous remnant, right? So when I say the church is dead, I don't mean everybody in the, there are no Christians. That's definitely not what I'm saying. There's all the fact that many of you in the room, I would fully affirm, all of you in the room, I'd fully affirm. No, these are people that follow God, follow Christ and want to serve him each day. But the American church, I think is a lost cause. Now, I have a buddy who's planting a church I and there's restoration projects in, in, that are in tow. I think they can work, but they have to set a new course and a new course. And that new course is to reflect the love of Jesus to the world. That's the gospel in my opinion. So now, and that's my sermon for today, but actually it, I might go ahead and give another one later. So just be aware. Rob, to not get too far from no, Derry's uh, quote, or yep. uh, not quote, but her, well, her memory of the you preaching the five gospels and what we represent, you also at that same referred us to a quote. Uh, it might have been Spurgeon, but uh, that was similar to that about witnessing. Uh, and it was something to do with. You know, I speak the gospel, blah, or blah, 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 blah. But and sometimes I use words. What, yeah. what, what was that? Well, we don't know who this quote goes to. No, actually, no, that's that's the five gospels one. I think is is actually, but it's preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. 
we just had a Presbyterian meeting here and a Presbyterian meeting is, is a meeting of all the local churches within the denomination in, in an area. And they brought a speaker in Friday night and Saturday. And the genesis of his talk was how to have spiritual conversations. And on Friday night, he began by talking about the data, the surveys out there, the Barna surveys. And Barna is like a legit survey organization that does a lot of Christian surveys that says millennials don't even want to have spiritual conversations. But he went on, however, to give us a three-hour presentation on how to have a spiritual conversation Friday night and the rest of Saturday and part of Saturday morning. Now, the reality is this. Millennials are older, by the way. We now have Gen Z is a large majority of the culture. A large majority of the culture does not want to have spiritual conversations. And yet, what do we do training our churches and our pastors? Here's how you have a spiritual conversation so you can help grow your church. Well, you're going to grow your church with middle age and older people, if anything. And we all know the, the data, by the way, middle age and older people either already go to church or never will. People make faith commitments no later than their 20s. There are exceptions to that, but those are rare exceptions. So if your goal is to plant the church with a bunch of older people, you're probably not, they're probably either already in a church or they're not ever going to go. But that was, well, that was our training session. So the first problem is millennials don't want to have a spiritual conversation. Second problem is this. If our life doesn't reflect the conversation we're having, no one's going to listen anyways. And I think that's the problem. Now, I'm not speaking about you necessarily. I'm speaking about Christendom. See, the problem is this, is if you go to have a spiritual conversation with somebody at a Starbucks or wherever, they're thinking of this larger church and you have to dismantle that. In other words, you may not reflect that larger. You may reflect Jesus. You may reflect the Christian. You, you may reflect compassion and gentleness. Um, obviously not always. Th that may be your ambition. And you might be a great Christian, but they don't know that. They just met you at Starbucks. And so when you talk about Christianity, they're thinking of those people that make the news. And that means they're not going to listen to our witness. So I think, my opinion here, and no one asked me, that our three and a half hour training session at Presbytery was a waste of time because we didn't ask the right questions. It was, a great, it was great, good information, good, good stuff. And it may be useful here and there, but as far as wholesale renovation and reviving of the churches or resurrecting of our churches, it's actually, it's mute. How do we reach people that don't want to even have a spiritual conversation? The only way we can do it is actually is just model Jesus for them. And that's the hard way, that's the long way, and that's the only way. Yep, good news and bad news. So now you have your assignment, go do it. So, um, <laughs> and the disciples' answer was, Lord, increase our faith, right? That's Luke 17. They're like, okay, Lord, increase our faith. Because you're telling me that the way of the cross and the way of suffering, that's actually the way it works. You know, and some of you know, I'm training the pastors in India, and that's kind of the message I gave to them too. And it's, it's, look, we do these things over here sometimes because we want to start big churches and we want to have big ministries and be successful. But that may not reflect the gospel and it may not reflect the kingdom. And, and I think a lot of them get it because if you're not aware, but India is a Hindu nationalistic state to this day because the prime minister is a strong Hindu. And therefore, Christianity is not good. They're being persecuted. They're being imprisoned. The meeting last Saturday was pray for so-and-so. He's got a court uh, appearance on November 9th, I think it is, because he was arrested for being a Christian. So th they get it a little, a little bit more, but uh, I don't think the Western church gets it as much. So, All right, anybody else? So here's what we started last week. And, and that was, we looked at Genesis 3.15 and the curse on the serpent. So Genesis 3, there's uh, the fall of Adam and Eve. And then God curses the serpent and he curses the woman and then he curses the man. And the curse of the serpent, it was, I'm going to put enmity, Genesis 3.15, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And then we said, look, the Bible actually is reflecting this conflict. This is the conflict. And the way to, if we start in the gospel of Mark and what kind of chapter one in the gospel of Mark, as I was thinking, that would be one of the first lessons. Look, the enemy of the kingdom of God is the devil. 
That is who Jesus is opposing in Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 3, Mark 4, and Mark 5. And in Mark 5, the devil, the demon calls himself legion, which is the empire, right? So this, this is what the, the gospel of Mark is, is playing out. So this great conflict in humanity goes back to the garden, and it's the conflict between the woman and the serpent. And we always have to keep that in mind. Let's go ahead and do this, because I think this is fun. So this isn't on your notes yet. So I haven't even reached like point one on your notes yet. So, <laughs> so open to the, to the book of Exodus. The same thought is that the conflict in the garden plays out throughout the biblical story, mm. all the way through the Gospels. And by the way, in the book of Revelation, Satan is depicted as what? Anybody know? He's a seven-headed he's, he's seven dragon. He's a beast. And a dragon. The, no, the, the beast has seven heads also. But yeah. Satan actually is the dragon in right. chapter 12, and the dragon empowers the beast. So the beast is the empire who's empowered by the dragon. So this conflict of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman goes throughout the entirety of the Bible, including the book of Revelation, all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. So Exodus chapter 1, somebody want to read Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. 1-7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so, so numerous that the land was filled with them. The sons of Israel are being described in what kind of language? Exodus 1-7. What Bible verses does that resonate with? Something earlier, of course. Be the fruitful fruit. and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. The garden. Adam yeah. and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And look what it says. And the land was filled with them. The Israelites in Egypt were fulfilling God's mandate to fulfill, to fill the earth, to, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Now read verse eight. You want to read verse eight too, Scott, while you have it? Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Ah, here's your conflict. Now, turn to Ezekiel 29, verse 3. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, kind of right in the middle of your Bible, after Psalms and Proverbs. Speak and say thus, say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of the rivers. Uh, he said, my Nile is mine and myself have made it. Pharaoh is described in the prophets as what? A king. A king and? Dragon. A monster. A monster. What kind of monster? Dragon. A sea monster. Yeah. Monster. <laughs> yeah, dragon's fine. Uh, it's, monster. Le it's Leviathan in the book of Isaiah. Oh, in the book of Job, excuse me. Fire-breathing monster. The conflict in the book of Exodus is what? It's Eden re being relived. And Satan is the mastermind behind it. So the enemy of the kingdom of God is the devil. So we're going to look at Colossians 3, 1 through 14, but later. So that, that's going to be kind of our key text that we'll go to a little bit. So the first thing on the notes is, is distinguishing the kingdom of God from the kingdoms of the world. So the reality is, and as Derry pointed out earlier, we live in the kingdom of God and also in the kingdoms of the world. The kingdom of God is already here and it's not yet here. We're going to unpack that a little bit. So how is the kingdom of God different from the kingdoms of the world? And the first point is they're different with regards to time. Kingdoms of, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world are different with, with regards to time. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Look carefully at it. Upon whom, for us, they were written for us and for our instruction, upon whom the end of the age has come. It's already here. The end of the age is here. On your notes, it says, here's all these references. And if you're listening on the podcast, I'm going to do my best to put these notes in the show notes. So I'm going to try to cut and paste them into the show notes so you can look at the outline in the show notes. The kingdoms of the world are called this age or the age or the present age. So you have three, it could be referred to as this age, the kings of this age, or the age, or it could be the present age. And I gave you some references, Matthew 12, 32, 13, 39 through 40. The kingdom of God is referred to as the age to come. 
And I gave you some references there, uh, Matthew 12, 32, Mark 10, verse 30, Luke 18, verse 30, Ephesians 1, 21, Hebrews 6, verse 5, the age to come. Now, the problem is going to be in the language, because when we hear age to come, we think it is future, right? Mm -hmm. Age to come means yeah. it's not here yet. It's the age that's going to come. And the reason why it was called the age to come is because when they named it that, it was the age that was to come. But now, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, it's already arrived. And so now the age to come is now the age that once was to come, but now is here. And they decided not to rename it the age that once was to come, but now is near, because that was just too long. They just kept the name, the age that is to come. And that leads to confusion. Because mm -hmm. we think of it as something future, but when they first coined the phrase, it was something future, but now it's something present. So the next point, the fill in the blank on your notes is the age to come has arrived, but only in part. So the fill in the blank is only in part. The age to come has arrived, but only in part. So the end of the ages has come. And what we have to figure out is, well, what does the end of the age look like? What does it mean? If we're saying the kingdom of God's come, how do we know? And we have an idea, how do we know what evidence, and this is like for Paul, there's one really specific evidence that proves that the end of the age has already come, or at least it's begun. So I said the kingdom of God's begun. Anybody know? How do we know the kingdom of God's already begun or it's already come, but only in part? Jesus's resurrection? Well, yes. And Jesus's resurrection? Of his death and resurrection? Or? That's right. But there's, add to that, what happened after that? He ascended into heaven. That's right. And he sat down. That means he's sitting as the oh. king. And then after that, he... The spirit came. He sent the spirit. Ah. Yes. yes. And, and it's, it's kind of all of the above. In the language of Paul, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit is the proof of the age to come. The, the age to come is here because you have the Holy Spirit. And in other words, if we were to say the kingdom of God is the presence of God amongst us, the kingdom of God is where God reigns. Well, where does God reign now? Well, in our hearts, hmm. through the spirit, and therefore the kingdom of God's come because we have the spirit. Now, note that it's kingdom language that talks about Jesus' death, right? He, he was crucified for being the king of the Jews. It's kingdom language to say he ascended into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the father because he sits down on the throne. He's the king. So the, the ascension by the way, the ascension is so undermined in Christian theology, and probably, I'm probably guilty of it as well. We just don't accent the ascension enough. It's like Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and ascended into heaven. We leave the ascension off. But it, it's vital because it's his enthronement. He sits enthroned in heaven. And then the sending of the Spirit now. Now, the reason why we know it's only here in part, however, so the kingdom of God's come but it's arrived only in part. And we know that it's come because the spirit's with us. We know it's in part because, well, we still have death. We still have sin, right? We still have this body of flesh that, that has pain and suffering. Uh, if we skip to the book of Revelation and the end of the book, we realize there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or death. The first things that passed away, behold, all things are new. Ah, that's when the kingdom of God's come in fullness. When that has arrived, when there's no more death, when there's no more mourning, when there's no more sin, when there's no, as long as those things ex remain, then the kingdom of God's only come in part. So we understand that part so far. Now, the second point would be this, though the age to come has already arrived. And again, the age to come can be, it's the same as saying the kingdom of God, this age or the present age being the kingdoms of the world also continue. And that's the fill in the blank. The words also continue though. The age to come has already arrived. The present age also continues. Or to say, though the kingdom of God's already arrived, the kingdoms of the world also continue. And the evidence of that is, well, death and sin and pain and suffering, wars and rumors of wars. All those things are a sign that the, kingdom, that the kingdoms of this world still exist. They still are present. That makes sense? So the first point then is, they're different with regards to time. Okay, now... They are different because the kingdoms of the world pass away and the kingdom of God is eternal. That's how they're different with regards to time. The kingdoms of this world will pass away, but the kingdom of God is eternal. And that's a significant difference that Paul and Jesus and the New Testament writers 
Like, why are you living in accordance with things that are destined to perish? Why do you live this way? Those things hmm. are destined to perish. They don't have any, any abiding value. Ah, but what does of it last forever? Love. The greatest of these is love. Why? Because love lasts forever. So the fill in the blank then is this. The kingdoms of this world are destined to perish while the kingdom of God lasts forever. So that's the fill in the blank. The destined to perish is the first fill in the blank. And the second one is lasts forever. The kingdoms of this world are destined to perish. They, are, they pass away, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. It is eternal. Major difference between the two kingdoms. For those of you that are on the Zoom call here, if we kind of had like, think of these, my, my two hands that are hovering above one another are timelines. Now, the kingdom of this world began, you can say, in Eden, and it's going to end at the second coming of Christ. So here's the end. Here's the beginning. It began at, at Eden with sin. And it ends at the second coming of Christ. And we can debate whether there's a millennium after. It doesn't matter. You get the idea. The kingdom of God began here. And that here was, is often referred to as the cross. But I think the kingdom of God began with the baptism of Jesus. The incarnation, the baptism of Jesus. It begins with Christ. And now it exists parallel. They, they coexist. But this top kingdom that began at the cross or began with the baptism of Jesus that kingdom is going to last forever. It has no end. And so Paul will constantly contrast these two kingdoms saying, don't live by this kingdom, which you'll call the mm. flesh, but by this kingdom, which is called the kingdom of the spirit. And then you see what happens. What happens is modernism comes into play. And we think the spirit means some heavenly spiritual realm. And the flesh means some earthly physical realm. And they're not the spirit is actually the Holy Spirit, i.e. the one that is evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God now. And the kingdom of God dwells now in my physical body, which is therefore both part of the old world and part of the new world. Or the better way to understand it would be this. In the resurrection, our flesh is resurrected. The kingdom of God is fleshly or physical, we wouldn't use the word fleshly because that so often refers to the carnalness of our present stage. But it is physical in the sense that it's the restoration of creation. And I think there's been a lot of really good work with N.T. Wright. Okay, so now let's go to Matthew 13, 39. If someone wants to read that verse, and if somebody else would read 1 Corinthians 2, 6, and somebody else would want to read 1 John 2, 8. Okay. And the end enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. That's obviously at the end of a parable in Matthew 13, but there you go. The enemy who sowed them, the, the, the tares, is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. This age will end. All right, 1 Corinthians 2.6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I think some translations even say destined to perish. So they're coming mm -hmm. to nothing. Very good. And then first John two, verse eight. Yet I am writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining contrast between this age and the present age or this age and the age to come is that this age is one of darkness and right and satan's blinded the minds of the unbelievers and all that and the age to come is the age of light which is a synonym for truth and this age is is passing away so this is why i encourage you to read when you get a chance this is not on your notes i don't believe so write it down if you will galatians 5 verses 16 to 26 you're probably familiar with the passage, believe it or not. Deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the spirit or, or the, and the fruit of the spirit, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. So Galatians 5, 16 through 26. And you're going to see this contrast between these two ages and these two kingdoms. So Matthew 6 now, 19 to 20. This is a great one. Here we go. Not like the other ones like weren't great, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. 
Now, this is one of those verses that gets so commonly misunderstood <clears throat> because we think of heaven as a spiritual other, other place and earth as this physical worldly place down here. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about storing up treasures in the kingdom of heaven versus treasures in the kingdom of this earth. And if you were with us in our Luke study months ago, and we'll go back to this later on when we do Luke, Luke is making this big stress. And that big stress is that the people of this age, they do things to store up for themselves well-being in this age. But the people of God store up for themselves treasures in the age to come. And the difference between the two is love. The difference between the two is laying down your life for the sake of the other. It's doing acts of justice. Justice lasts forever. The, the kingdom of God is this restoration of creation. And as we work towards the restoration of creation, we're working towards the kingdom of God. And we're going to continue to flush that last thing out. Now, one last thought also, and that is in the gospel of Matthew, he, I don't think he actually ever uses the phrase kingdom of God. He always uses kingdom of heaven. And Luke uses kingdom of God. And the difference between the two is simply this. Matthew is a simply a good Jewish person that refuses to use the word God unless it's absolutely necessary. So heaven is just another word for the, where God dwells. Don't take my name in vain. And the answer is, I just won't say his name. I just won't say God. They will actually refrain from referring even to God by the name, the generic name, uh, God, if, if at all possible. So that's what's happening there with Matthew. All right, now let's go to Colossians 3 now and really see how Paul applies this. And obviously there's, a, there's an argument going on in Colossians 3 that builds off of Colossians 2, but let's look at Colossians chapter 3. And really, we want to look at the first 14 verses, but we won't take the time to look at all of them. Let's kind of flush this out. So let's see. So somebody want to read verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, again, always bear in mind that we just have to constantly be clarifying that things above doesn't mean spiritual, non-physical things. It means that's where God sits, right? It says that in verse one, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. Was, set your mind on the things that are eternal. Now we have to figure out, okay, what actually is eternal? We've already kind of given the hint. It's the restoration of all of creation and justice and equity and peace and harmony and no more death and more. It, it, that's it. If we work towards that, in other words, is what Paul's saying. And not in the things of the earth, which is material prosperity, comfort, pleasure, power, the things that lead to death, the things that don't last forever. That's, that's the distinction that Paul's making. Does that make sense to everyone? All right. And notice what he says at the beginning of that. It, therefore, if you have been raised, he's not referring to your resurrection as something future. He's referring to our resurrection as something that's already happened since you already have been raised with Christ. Oh, we, we've already actually been seated with him at the right hand of God. That's where we are seated. And you know, Paul will use the, the, the language of we are ambassadors or our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. That's our rightful kingdom and where we dwell, but it's not some spiritual thing aloof from the physical world around us. Okay, any questions or thoughts there as we move forward? Now, what Paul's gonna do then is, he's gonna contrast, he's gonna contrast the living according to this world with the living according to the kingdom of God. So in verse five, it's what it means to live in the kingdom of this world. Therefore, count yourselves as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. It's because of these things that the wrath of God has come or will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you once walked when you were living in them. But now put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. From you. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and you put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Right, now, somebody wanted to pick that up uh, in verse 12 and 13 and 14. So Colossians 3, 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves 
you clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And 13 too? Yeah. And, and 14 also, yeah. 13 and okay. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is why Colossians 3 is perhaps the perfect passage for us to illustrate this whole point. There you go. The contrast, you've already been raised with Christ. So seek the things of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which is not spiritual detached things. And stop seeking the things of this world, which are going to perish. He lists the things of this world, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. He lists those things. Don't seek those things, immorality. Instead, seek these things. And the essence mm. of these things is love. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Forgive each other. That's what love looks like. Bear with one another. Put, be humble, be kind, be gentle. And to go back to what we said earlier, when the church becomes like that, and then we're known for that, then we can have spiritual conversations more effectively and our witness is, is more in hand. I hope it's tangible and, and yeah. doable. And by the way, I would say this, if we want to stop here for a second, that one of the key things we do to grow in the spirit, through the spirit, is to let the word of God dwell in us. And that's what Colossians 3 is going to actually go on to say, that let the word of God dwell in you richly. Not only us corporately, but also us individually. And, it's, and, and it is both. That's why this gathering, even though it's by Zoom, it's, it's important because the word of God has to dwell amongst us. Mm. And I've said before, you probably all have heard me say it in whatever context, that there is nothing more impactful to your spiritual growth than meditating on the scriptures. Whether you actually memorize the passage or you just read it over and over and over again. Just meditate on it. And the more you meditate on it, the more like, oh, never even noticed that, that before. It, the answer is actually, it was meant for you to meditate on. It was meant for it to be read over and over and over and over again. And that's why we keep unearthing treasures. And if we go back to what we discussed in a couple of weeks ago, that's the seed that was sown. The seed hmm. is the word. It's Christ and it's the word. And so I think. And, and these, yeah. this scripture that we just read there, um, yeah. 12 through 14, points right back to the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Matthew 6 that we just read. Mm -hmm. I hope that by the time we're done, even with the study, you're going to realize everything in the Bible reflects this topic. The entire Bible is about the kingdom. That's what it's about. Now that kingdom, and, and I think I would affirm what Scott said earlier, that kingdom is about God's glory because it's about God's temple presence being amongst us. So it is about the glory, but it's also about us reflecting that glory to the world. And that's our, that's our mission. And the problem is, is that we live in this world and in that age to come at the same time. And they wage war with one another, as Paul will say, right? In the book of Romans, for example. Mm -hmm. And so th there's this, this is the battle. So how do we win that battle? And the answer is we set our minds on things above. We meditate on the word. They, right? How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but who meditates on his law day and night. That's uh, Psalm 1. That, that's the introduction of the entire book of Psalms. And there you go. The Psalms are meant to be meditated on. Okay, so here we go. Let's finish this up. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are different because they have different rulers. And that's kind of the point we've already made. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are different because they have different rulers. So 1 John Chapter five, if somebody wants to read that uh, verse 19, I, I already quoted second Corinthians four, four, the God of this age is bound in the minds of the unbelievers. He's the God of this age. So first John five, verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know that we are children of God and the world and the word world here is being used of in the context of this present age is under the power of the evil one. Luke 4, verses 5 and 6. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Ah, uh, and this is huge. Now, obviously, it illustrates our point. 
that the kingdom of this world is actually under the control of the devil. Here's all the kings of the world. And notice, by the way, all of them at one, at one moment of, of time. It's past, present, and future kingdoms. It's not just the Roman Empire. It's also all empire. And he says, and I'm going to give it to you because it's been handed over to me and I can give it to whoever I want. So that illustrates our point. The next thing to note, however, is this. This is the conflict of Jesus. And he's living out the garden because Adam and Eve had the same opportunities. And the answer is, are you going to listen to the serpent or are you going to listen to the father? You see, the way of the kingdom for Jesus was either going to be coming through the will of the father or through the will of the serpent. And the serpent said, I got an easy way for you to do it because all you have to do is bow down and worship me and I'll give it to you. The father, he's going to make you suffer. If you want to inherit the kingdom from the father, you have to go to the cross. That's why this was such a temptation for Jesus. Because if you read the end of the gospels, he's like, father, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. If it's possible, remove this cup from me, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew that the way of God's kingdom was the way of suffering, which then goes to what? It tells us, well, if the gospel, if the Bible is a story about Jesus, that actually then is about the spirit, who actually then is about us being empowered by the spirit and making Jesus known, then guess what? The way of the kingdom is about sacrifice, sacrificial love. And that's why the commentary I'm writing on the book of Revelation is, the book of Revelation, a love story. That's the secret. The way God redeems his creation is through his loving, faithful servants who sacrifice themselves for the sake of the other, just like Jesus sacrificed himself for the sake of the other. That's the good news for today. Now go die, right? <laughs> so, uh, all right, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26. And this, by the way, is the, this is the Christ has been seated reference where he, he's ascended into heaven. And he's now taken a seat. And this is the, the significance of that in Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians 15. Someone want to read it? 23 through 26. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. All right, now that there's a lot there. Okay, so let's unpack it for just, for just a minute before we finish up. So verse 22 said, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 23, each in his own order. In order of what? Of being made alive. Christ is first. That's his death and resurrection. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming, meaning we're going to be resurrected at the second coming. Then comes the end. So here's your order. Christ resurrects. Then Christ returns and we resurrect. Then the end comes. What happens then? Verse 24. He's going to hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Meaning mm. Christ is, is already the king. So we kind of have these dueling kingdoms. Mm. Because Satan continues to be the king. And he continues to rule over the kingdoms of the world. That's why the book of Revelation says the beast received his power, throne, and great authority from the dragon. That's Revelation 13 verse 2. The beast receives his power, throne, and great authority from the dragon. So Satan empowers the beast, the kings of this world. But what's going to happen then is Christ presently reigns, and he's going to then, at, the, at his return, he's going to hand over the kingdom to God the Father. And then he's going to abolish all rule and authority and power, meaning Satan's rule has not yet been abolished. Because Jesus must continue to reign, verse 25, until he's put all the enemies under his feet. Well, we might ask, well, how is Jesus putting all of, in, all of his enemies under his feet? Through the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. In other words, we kind of fit into the narrative of verse 25. The way mm. Jesus is, putting, is reigning and putting all enemies under his feet is through the witness of the church. And then verse 26. And then the last enemy that, to be abolished is death. And that's obviously Revelation 21. Death will be, there will be no more death. And obviously Satan is thrown in the lake of fire and whatever you want to do with all that. If I can summarize, the kingdom of God is something present now with the coming of Jesus. It refers to the reign of God and the kingdom of God is where Jesus reigns. But don't think of that as heaven in the sense of something aloof from us in a spiritual realm. Think of that as 
Heaven is the realm in which God reigns. And that includes our hearts. So in other words, it's not detached from here. It's present. And by the way, let me make a note on that. The Bible refers to the second coming of Jesus. But sometimes it doesn't use the word coming. It uses the word appearing. And the word appearing means he's already here. You just can't see him. So sometimes we have this notion of him coming. We think, oh, he's coming down from heaven. But the reality is sometimes it says in light of his appearing, meaning he's already here. He just hasn't been manifested yet. So the kingdom of God's here in Jesus. And that, that's his reign. The difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world is, well, the kingdom of God doesn't last forever, but the kingdoms of this world don't last forever. And in the meantime, and that's the already not yet now. So if we haven't kind of summarized this, as Derry mentioned earlier, this, this is the already not yet. The already meant is the kingdom of God's already here. The, the already is he is already reigning. He has already been resurrected. The not yet is, well, there's still death and there's still suffering. And the kingdoms of this world are still presently existing. He hasn't abolished them yet. When that happens, then it'll be already and already and no more not yet. So uh, the kingdom of God's come, but only in part. In the meantime, the kingdom of the age, this age continues to exist. Don't think of the age to come as something future. It just said that because when it was a, when the phrase came about, it was something future, but now the age to come has come. And to say the age that was about to come, but now has already arrived is long and clumsy. Kingdoms of this world are destined to perish. The kingdom of God lasts forever. And then we live in these two kingdoms. So uh, the last fill in the blank, I think, is this. In the present, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world stand opposed to one another. In the present, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world stand opposed to one another. Now, it's this, even though the kingdom of God hadn't come in Psalm 73, if you get a chance this week to read Psalm 73, you're going to see the psalmist grappling with the apparent prosperity of those in this world with his own apparent, not apparent, but real suffering. And then he's going to figure out, oh, I figured out the solution to, the, to, my, to my quandary. It just doesn't seem fair. And then he's going to realize that the end result. And, then, and obviously what we discussed tonight should fill in the blank for you there. All right. Any, any questions, comments? I hope that was profitable for you. It was good. I know we jumped around yeah. some different verses. Yeah. Okay, good. That feast was delicious. <laughs> what feast? <laughs> the word. The word. Oh, that, that, okay. Thank you. I wasn't sure if you were, if you were like not realizing that you were unmuted and you were talking to Paul. Uh, I'm talking about how this discussion is just very good. Fruitful and delicious. So. Good. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Try to uh, do a lot of research on the kingdom of God by reading all these verses. Mm. Um, but I haven't found anybody that connected all the dots like you <laughs> connected them tonight. I mean, it's, I don't think I've totally absorbed it, but I've got, <laughs> but, but I have all the references. So I mean, it's really, uh, really amazing the way that this came out for me anyway. So good. Excellent. Thank, Excellent. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I would kind of ask one question. Just, Please, I yeah. wonder, Rob, how, how a pastor, you know, pastoring a church, which obviously you've done, how you would in, begin to introduce something like this, or, or maybe how someone could <clears throat> say, gosh, I'm interested in hearing something about this. Um, how do you, how do you get the church to do something different than they've done for the last, well, in my life, 50 years? <laughs> That's two different questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I don't is, have time for that. So. No, no. One of them I know the answer to, the other one I don't. All right. Okay. Uh, uh, I think, and, and John and Bill and Alan and, and anybody else, and Gracie, you're welcome to chime in. I think I preached on this a lot. I, I think Bill and John and Gracie uh, and those, and Alan and those that are, that are on the call from NPC days in Bakersfield, they would say, <laughs> yeah, I've heard this before whether it was in bits and pieces over the course of sermons, or even sometimes in classes, most of the people on the study on this call here were in my Bible study on Wednesday nights too. So they got, they got this, this isn't probably new to them. And actually, to be honest with you, by the way, those of you guys from the cornerstone days too, this isn't new to you either. You just forgot. Cause I, I mm. thought this, for, yeah. I thought this to you yeah. also. First point actually is, is because it centers the focus of the Christian life on the kingdom of God and not on the kingdom of the world. And it helps us distinguish between these two foci. Second thing is, of course, is that 
it then the next step actually is the mission of God's people. And the mission of God's people is to now actually go live this out to the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, what you need to help the church do. The problem is your second question is how do you get a church to change? I tried for seven years. <laughs> so, yeah. and well, I think there was a lot of change. So I, I'm not saying it was totally, totally futile. I think it, there was a lot of change. And I think it was good. And I think there's a lot of people that, that really were transformed personally and corporately during, during that time from the application of this and, and, and living it out. And from the efforts that we made to help with food, with feeding things and Christmas outreaches and Thanksgiving outreaches and, and right. outreaches to the neighborhood, trying to live this out. So I think people were transformed by this, but I think you're up against the wall when you have the the established church that says, this is the way we've done it all these years. And some of them are really good people, but their answer is, we've always done it this way and it worked back then. Mm. And the answer is, yeah, but the way you did it back then was actually relevant to the time back then. And the Mm. times have changed. And I tried explaining that and I think it was challenging at times. I'll say it that way. Yeah. And, and, and again, I could have went about the wrong way. Maybe I should have just done it, right? I think that was one of the things we talked about. Maybe I should just I should just made the wholesale changes and let the bodies fall, but I didn't want to do that. And and maybe that's maybe I was wrong. So I don't know. Carol, were you gonna say something else? Uh, no, somebody else spoke somebody else up. I've got talking. lots to say, but I okay. won't do it here. Oh, that's fine. Well, just one thought is that to me it's an individual discipleship question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we can't live this out independently at the same time. It's one of those both and type scenes. And I feel like one of the most impactful times for me about what is this Christian stuff about was the Bible Academy at Cornerstone Hmm. because the, you know, there was, we were a little or medium sized small group on a lot of levels after the years. And I think it taught me a lot and being blessed by being in a continuing small group. Yeah. To figure, but it's, I feel like we'll be, if we're, if we're diligent, we'll spend the rest of our life figuring it out and going, Oh gosh, that was really (laughs) bad. And that wasn't so bad. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and, and there has to be, there has to be humility here though, right? There has to be this, okay. Oh, I've got it figured out. And those people don't, man, I wish they would figure it out. Like I figured it out because Rob just explained it all to me tonight. And now I got it. Right. Right. That, that doesn't, that's not King. That's not reflecting the kingdom, right? That's not reflecting no, the gospel no. either. Yeah. It's the hardest part of, of being a pastor for me. What I did in Livermore was easier because I had 125 people every week that were there because they wanted to go deeper into the word. This isn't Sunday morning. That was, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't their duty. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to go deep. So my ministry was easy. And then the rest of my ministry was mentoring the pastors on the staff. So I dealt with the mature for the most part, right? Well, I, there's a few of you that maybe not quite, I, you know, anyway. but in, yeah. the, in the church, now you, you have the whole bundle and you want to take the one that's weak and immature and, but wants to grow, but doesn't realize that they, and, and you want to bring them along, but you also have the one who is stuck in their way and selfish and thinks this is the only way and, and is not willing to change because they're a mature disciple and therefore everybody else can become a mature disciple the way that, the way that they have. It's like the cultures change people. And so, and you have those tensions and let's also be honest. And I've said this before, the reason why I think the, the, the sermon is the worst genre that we have, the, the worst genre that we have for teaching is a sermon. It's, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. And what I mean by that is that the sermon doesn't allow for interaction. There's mm-hmm. no raising your hands. There's no questions. There's no comments. There's no, but are you saying this? Because I'll tell you right now, I've had people come to me on Tuesday going, you know, you said this in your sermon. I'm like, oh, no, that's not what I meant. And I never would have thought that somebody would ever have taken my sermon and went that direction until somebody told me on Tuesday the following week. So the sermon, the problem with the sermon, however, though, is this, you have mature believers that you're trying to exhort and encourage. You have people that aren't mature believers, but think they are. And you're trying to rebuke them a little bit and say, Hey guys, you know what? You need to get this going. But you also have people that are kind of mature believers, but they don't think they are. 
when you rebuke that previous group, you kind of help that other group kind of feel even worse about themselves. So when you want to help those believers that are struggling, but they're really trying, when you want to encourage them, you might be encouraging the people who don't actually need to be encouraged and need to be rebuked right now. And then you also have unbelievers in the, in the audience, right? Whether it's a visitor or whether it's somebody who just, I just go to church because that's, and I don't really actually know Jesus, but I'm learning about him and this is cool. And they're all at different yeah. places. And mm. how do you hit all of them at one time? <clears throat> you can't, you can't. Un unless you're being communicative, unless you're being interactive. I simply, you know, when you read the sermons of Paul, you, what you don't read is the interactions, but you can't tell me that there weren't interactions. He's in a house. Mm -hmm. there, there has to be interactions with, uh, with these. We shouldn't take these as monologues. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, th I think, mm -hmm. I think that's dangerous there. And of course the, the sermon elevates the preacher, puts them on a, on a focus, puts them on a pedestal. And instead of elevating the word, Scott McKnight was on a, my podcast. If you listen to that and Scott McKnight says, by necessity, a pastor is a narcissist because anybody that wants to get up on stage and feels comfortable about preaching to 100 or 200 people at a time or more has a narcissist element to them. The danger then is that can be fueled, right? That narcissist tendency can be fueled because everybody shakes your hands. It's good sermon, pastor, good sermon, pastor, good sermon, right? And it's, I just think it's highly problematic. So 100%, I have a, cousin who started out preaching and over time you could kind of see his personality change mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. definitely yep. was in it for the glory and it, it's really sad to see yeah there's a lot that start off and i think they almost all start off the right way yes and then something turns thank you for listening to today's podcast please subscribe to and like our podcast you can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.